Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the How to Write a Book podcast. I'm your host, Maciel. Before we dive in, we have a special announcement. I have been chosen to be one of the judges for Quill Hawk Publishing and their indie contest. So if you have published a book in 2023 and you've indie published it, um, go ahead and follow me either on LinkedIn, you can find me right away with my full name or on Instagram for details and the winners get a whole bunch of goodies. Um, and if you are an honorable mention, you also get a couple of goodies. The contest ends at the end of January 2024. And the winners will be announced in April. So go ahead and dive in. I'm a fiction judge for that. I'm really excited. So dive on in. Do not waste this opportunity. Um, okay, now with this episode, um, I loved talking to Frank. He was wonderful, great wealth of knowledge. And on top of that, I mean, Frank has a diverse background, you know, being in law enforcement. And some of the cool things that we talked about like, were about details and mindset. And the conversation turned in a way that I didn't expect, but it was full of information. I loved it. And I think you will, too. All right, let's dive in. Welcome to the How to Write a Book podcast, the show that helps you plan, write, and publish your book, even if you're a beginner or just feel like one. Now, for your host, she's written over a dozen books and helps others bring their books to life. Here she is, Maciel. Hello, and welcome back to the How to Write a Book podcast. Frank DeFiro, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Of course. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really excited to talk about you and to talk about your work. But before we do, let me do a little bit of an introduction, and I would love to throw it over to you. So, uh, Frank, you write gritty crime fiction from both sides of the badge. This includes your River City series, which is an ensemble cast of police officers, and your Skill Compton series with a rotating cast of criminals. Your storytelling creed is that the good guys usually win but not always and never without a cost, which I love that. You have served in the U.S. Army. You were a police officer in Spokane, Washington. And after you retired, then you went into teaching law enforcement and writing. Um, And you have a plethora, a number of books. So thank you so much for joining the show. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself that I haven't covered already? Well, I think you covered just about the whole waterfront there, to be honest with you. Um, I, I guess I'd just add that, like uh, many writers, I've been a writer, you know, since I was a kid. And I mean, there are some people who go through other careers and then become writers at the, you know, as their second career. They, you know, they discover writing later in life. Uh, and that's wonderful. Uh, but there are those of us who were telling stories, you know, at, at six your parents called them lies, but they were just stories and, you know, and, and, you know, became, you know, identified, uh, self-identified, I guess you might say as, as a writer at a very young age. Um, and, and even though I've had other careers, then it's all, there's writing has always been there. That's always been how I've thought of myself. And so when I was, you know, finally retired, 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 uh, from everything, um, it was nice to, you know, get up in the morning, you get, get coffee and, you know, write full time. And when people ask, what do you do that? I can finally say, you know, I'm a writer and have that be actually my primary job. Yeah. And were you writing books during your, your working years as a, a military and a police officer, or did you kind of hold on to it? And then when you had the chance, you wrote full time. Yeah. Except for a about a six-year period um, on the job when I was uh, first, you know, first on the job. So I was learning. I was at the police academy, and then I was, you know, going through training, and then I was learning how to do uh, be a, a, a training officer, and then I was a corporal, and then I was a detective, and so I was always learning a different job for about six years there. And and I was going back to school at the same time, uh, getting my undergraduate degree in history. And so I did a lot of writing, but it was all technical writing. It was police reports and history papers. And and so uh, aside from that six-year period, I've, I've always been actively writing since, you know, since I was an adult, um, especially. I mean, my first short story was published while I was overseas in, in the Army back in the early, early 90s. And so... Uh, I did start writing crime fiction after I came out of that six year 
period of time where I didn't really have time for any fiction. And I started my first River City book uh, uh, in about 1995. Wow. And tell us, I'm super curious about your River City series. Tell us, like, what's it about and how did you come up with the idea of the cast of characters? Well, uh, it is an ensemble cast of, uh, of characters, and it's a police procedural, which means the focus is more often on, you know, h- how will the police go about addressing this crime? You often know who the bad guy is. You may even get point of view scenes from from the, the, the antagonist, um, and, and the focus is on the process. Uh, that's why it's called a procedural. Uh, but uh, even though it's kind of a rotating cast of characters or it's an ensemble cast, one character has emerged as the core of the series, and that's a, uh, an officer named Katie McLeod. And it's kind of interesting. She started as a, a, a pair of secondary or even tertiary characters in the first book. And ultimately I, I, I decided that neither of them was interesting enough to be their own character. And so I worked things around to combine sort of their storylines and, and traits to figure out who, who this character really was. And she became a, a really strong secondary character in the first book. And then in the second book and even stronger, maybe arguably barely secondary character to, to the story. And by the third book, she emerged as the, as, as what I would call at least first among equals, you know, um, and she's been the main character in, in most of the books since then. And the idea is, like you said in the introduction that, you know, the, the police in river city, they're trying to do the best that they can do, but they're not perfect and they're going to make mistakes. And sometimes those mistakes are horrible, costly ones. And sometimes they save the day and, and, all the way, uh, along the way, you, you learn about their lives just like you would in any, you know, Hill Street Blues, you know, ER, any of these kinds of TV shows that have an ensemble cast. People marry, divorce, die, retire, promote, uh, you know, all the changes in life that happen, uh, right along side of the adventure that's happening as well. And kind of my goal, I think when I started, well, when I started, I think my goal was to tell stories about stuff I was experiencing. I don't think I had any grand designs initially, but pretty quickly I I decided, you know, people don't necessarily understand policing very well. They think they do because they see police shows or they read books and, you know, and, and, but they really, they don't, you know, they don't really understand it in the way that, is frustrating when you're doing the job and you want people to understand because then they, you know, then they make informed decisions about what they think about something that's happened. And, and so I, I tried really hard and I have continued to try really hard to very much humanize the, the officers in, in this series so that people think of Katie McLeod, not some cop. Uh, because I'd like them to do that in real life too, you know, just look past the badge, look past the uniform and see the individual. Um, now that individual might be great. That individual might be a jerk. I mean, you never know. It's an individual, but it is a person rather than a symbol. And so, um, that that's been one of the focuses of that, of that series for me. And it's, uh, up to about, I think all the forgotten yesterday's was book 14 in the series. So, it's gone from 1994 to 2010 in in universe, and we're cooking right along. I'm hopefully be caught up here in a few years to present day. That's awesome. So you have 14 books in the River City series, and then how many do you have in the Spoke Compton? Uh, I'll be working this year, this coming year, on the sixth one in that series. That's a newer series, comparatively speaking. It didn't. I think the first book in that came out in 2010. So. Um, that, you know, that's been moving along, but not, not nearly as many. And that's one where it's kind of the flip side of the coin, really. It's the other side of the badge that, that, that I talk about in that tagline. And it, it's kind of, you know, one of the things is, is I, I had a career for 20 years in law enforcement. You, you, that's your perspective, right? But at the same time, you interact with a lot of people who have a very different perspective. And as a writer, it was, intriguing to me to try to to flip that coin over to approach it with that lens of 
of people who are in the criminal life and how do they see things? Because they see things, uh, not everything, but they do see th- some things very differently. And, you know, as you well know, as a, as a creative person, you, you want to explore these things. You don't want to just do the same thing over and over again and become static. And so I started looking at, okay, well, what would life be like from this criminal perspective? And I mean, I started with a guy who was a police officer who had a very bad incident occur that actually wasn't his fault, but it got made into his fault. And so he got kicked off the job and that that put a real burr under his saddle. And he ended up uh, using everything he learned for the period of time he was working as a police officer to become a very effective, uh, kind of under the radar, uh, fence. You know, he would buy and sell stolen items and he, he was, the title of the book is at their own game. And that's what he was trying to do. He's trying to beat them at their own game. Um, but then of course, an opportunity comes along that's too good to pass up and, you know, trouble ensues for him. And that's where the series kicks off. And those books each, even though the, there's a cast of characters that pop up, the perspective uh, from the main character is always a different, a different person. Um, and so it's, you know, really kind of fun. I, 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 not the last one, but the number four was from the perspective of a night size, like, you know, four and a half feet tall, um, maybe a little taller, but not much, um, a female burglar who was kind of, uh, she was, she was taking care of her brother who was an addict. And so she's, you know, and, and, and what she goes through and what she's, uh, thinking about. And then of course she comes across something that she shouldn't have. And now people want to hurt her. So she's got to get out of town and can't afford to get out of town. So you got to steal some more. And it's this big, you know, this big cycle of, you know, bad things happening and it, it it's it, you know it's neat to explore that kind of thing because that's was radically different than my own life experience but i still bumped up against it from an observational standpoint while i was you know in my career yeah and because you were you were a police officer and then you also became a detective so that means that during your entire career you had a chance to talk with um, criminals and get to know them and ask them, you know, like, why did you do this? What were you thinking? Probably way more professional than that. So you kind of had the glimpse. Sometimes the direct question is the best way to ask it, actually. So I'd say, I'd say you're bang on with those questions. Well, that's good. That's good. That's, that's my journalism skills, my small journalism skills. That <laughs> actually, journalists, journalists are excellent interviewers and, and you could pick up a lot of tips from a journalist as, uh, if you're, doing interviews in, in an investigative, you know, criminal or, or, you know, insurance or whatever, listen to how journalists ask questions and, and, you know, you will elicit a lot more answers sometimes than, than your typical interrogation tactics. Oh, that's interesting. And that leads me to my next question. Actually, I was going to ask you what kind of skills have you noticed that have transferred over from your law enforcement career into your writing career? Things that maybe you didn't expect. That's a good question. I don't think I've actually ever been asked that question. Uh, that's a sign of a good interview. Um, you know, I, I de- definitely think that recognizing particular details that matter that that can define a scene or a character um you know transfers over from as you're investigating you know you're looking for you know the way things are and you're picking up on uh, I guess you'd call them clues, right? You know, you're picking up on facts that matter. Um, and so that's maybe not a one-to-one, but it, you know, it sort of is a transferable skill. Um, when you're an investigator, now I was only a detective for two years before I promoted to sergeant. I actually spent the second half of my career in leadership roles, which gave me a, a, another perspective, which I, so I was very fortunate in that regard. I, I got to be around pretty much everything a police department does in one capacity or another. And as what I noticed is that as an investigator, whether you're a patrol officer investigating a scene that's just occurred or a detective doing follow-up, um, being able to figure people out is important because, you know, people, witnesses are unreliable, uh, purposefully 
uh, opaque or actually lie. You know, they lie a lot. Um, figuring out who's lying and, or why and what their motivation is 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 a, is a skill that's that, that helps you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've I've long said that. You know, even though you hear in murder mysteries, you know they have to have means, motive, and opportunity. Okay, fine, but the law doesn't recognize that in the same way. The law doesn't care about motive uh, hardly at all. Uh, it only comes into play for certain bumping it up from one degree to another degree, like your intent. But why you intended to do it, like you're mad because we're getting divorced or I stole money from you, doesn't really matter so much as did you intend to hit me with a hammer or not. But it does help you as an investigator as you're trying to figure out what's going on in the scene to wonder what's somebody's motivation here? Why would somebody do that? What's their what's their mental state? What's their emotional state? How are they seeing things? What's their perspective? Because that can lead you to the truth. And and while it might not be part of what is eventually brought up in court, if you don't get to the truth of the matter, it might never go to court. And that's a very transferable skill because you have to do that with every single character, right? I mean, you have to get into the shoes as much as possible uh, on on emotional and mental uh, levels of every character to, to write them true. Uh, otherwise, they're just a cardboard set piece uh, for your other characters, and that's that's not cool. And so I think, you know, reading people, I guess, is the short way to say it, uh, is definitely a skill that that transfers from from investigations to, uh, to to writing. But, I mean, the same would be true for a journalist in the very same way. The same would be true for a lot of different uh, different perspectives or different jobs, rather. Uh, I'm trying to think. I think another one that maybe uh, maybe transfers. I mean, you you learn to keep your cool under pressure, and and there's a lot of different pressures that come up in in our professions, you know, in in, in the creative world, and uh, being able to stay calm and maybe remain uh, as objective as possible uh, is that that's another life skill that that translates. I think. Um, but that's an excellent question. I'll have to give that some more thought. I imagine there are things I hadn't, I didn't think of. Yeah, that was great, though, right off the top of your head. I mean, those are some fantastic details. And uh, it makes so much sense. You know, you're writing a procedural. The details matter. Your readers are going to be very honed in. You know, like um, just with the difference between, between genres, um, you know, for example, romance fiction. Historical fiction readers are very different from contemporary fiction readers. Mm-hmm. Historical, mm-hmm. they want to know the details. You know, they want to mm-hmm. know where the bodice was exactly on that what time. What kind of fork did they use? Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's so important in what you write. Now, you said something that you also want to pay attention to people. Um, and it's so true. Like, witnesses are so unreliable. There was this one time in the old apartment we used to live in where the SWAT team came and it was me and my sister living together years ago and I guess they were investigating our neighbors and so they asked me and my sister you know some questions and we we're just kind of looking at each other and I was like I'm not totally sure what about this what about that and the, so then they, they pulled my sister away and it's let's, let's talk to your sister separately and then they came back with my sister and I we came back around after it was all said and done they left and she was like oh yeah I told them this 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 and this and this and this and I was like I didn't remember any of that <laughs> Well, that's interesting because, um, you know, that I mean, that's kind of the whole point is that we we all see the world differently and we all have different things that we focus on and key on and and that matter to us or that we tend to notice. Like my wife is a detail person and she is such a detail person and she gives me a hard time sometimes because I'll miss stuff. And she'll be like, you were a detective. (laughs) I was like, look, I was the detective. I wasn't the detective that walks in and sees three things and says, oh, these are important clues. I had to work at that. Like I had to really focus. Uh, You know, I knew other detectives who'd walk in and they, you know, Sherlock Holmes, the scene, right? I mean, they, they terminator it, you know, they'd look around and and they'd make, you know, they'd recognize all these things and, I mean, patrol guys too, and and I would miss stuff. That that was not that was my weak point, if anything, and certainly wasn't my strong point. But when it was time to step aside with somebody and do an interview, or or sit down in the interview room, whether it was with a suspect or or a victim or a witness, it didn't matter. There was my strong suit, and 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 if you think about it, that's a that's a skill too. I mean. Yeah. 
an interrogation by its very definition is me talking to you and you don't want to talk to me and you don't want to tell me anything. And my goal is to get you to tell me the truth against your own best self-interest. Um, that's, that's a tough road to hoe, you know, and, and if you can get people to confess or you can get people to make statements that, that help the case and, and get towards the truth or resolve the situation. It's a particular skill. And, uh, but I would miss stuff. So I just, I would always tell, tell Christy, look, we could team up, you know, you be the detail person. I'll, I'll go in the box with the suspect and we'll, 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 we'll clear every case that way. Cause I, you won't miss anything and I'll get all the confessions. Uh, but, but that's why you do separate witnesses. So they don't contaminate each other uh, unintentionally. And then, of course, if they're not necessarily cooperative, they don't back up each other's lies. I mean, um, there's a very simple saying that we used to use a lot. I used to use it a lot anyway, and that is the truth is easy to remember because it's what happened. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lie takes work, and it and it takes like repetition to remember it. And so, if you and I are separated and we tell completely different stories because one or both of us is lying, you know, that's why we're separated. If we're together while we're being interviewed, then we can weave our little tale together and tell tell you know both know the lie the other person is telling and so forth. If we're just witnesses. We we might contaminate each other's memory, and you might have remembered it correctly, but I remembered it differently. Yeah. And then I say first what I remembered, and makes you doubt what you saw, so you don't say it. But what you saw was more accurate. Right. You see what I mean? And so that's why you, you know, that, that's why they separated you. And yeah. it's funny that your sister, you know, came up with so much more that that struck her, and you know, and it didn't strike you. So yeah, and it was—it's exactly I was contaminating what she remembered totally. Mm-hmm. You know, because mm-hmm. I'm I'm often inside my own head. I'm thinking about mm-hmm. stories. I'm thinking about over here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's much more in what's happening right here, right now. So I'm right. more outspoken. So if she looks to me to remember, but I didn't remember this. Stuff, so I'm like, I don't know. This is this, this. So when it separated us, I was like, <laughs> oh, my sister's much more aware of what's going on. You know, I'm over yeah. here and with the wizards and the witches. I don't know what's right. happening. <laughs> right, right, right. But if you had to go talk to the neighbor you know, you'd probably be better at that, right? If you had to go next door and talk to the neighbor and then you might get a piece of information that they let slip or, or share that, you know, your sister would never be privy to because she's more in an observational sort of a a role. So, you know, I always try to think of things in terms of, well, every strength is also a weakness, but every weakness is also strength. And what's, you know, as, as a leader in particular, you, 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 when you have an employee that has a certain weakness, you know, you have to try to find, well, where could that be a strength or what are his or her strengths? And so where can I put them into a situation that they're successful? I mean, I, um, I, I like to be very careful because if certain people watch this, they'll know who I'm talking about. But, um, but it, I've been retired for 10 years. So probably all the people are retired that know, but there was a particular police officer who I worked with, um, who she really wasn't a very good patrol officer. Um, she thought she was, but she really, she really was pretty horrible. And I even saw that like as a three-year officer. And then years later, she was promoted to detective. And, and now detective is a different skill set. And it's also uh, at, at our department at the time, it was a written test only. And so if you, you could, you know, t- take that test. And if you test well, you could get promoted. And so people were, she's a terrible cop. And now she's a detective. It's the mediocrity gets promoted. Blah, blah, blah. And I, I was the same way. But then when I was promoted to sergeant, uh, and who knows, maybe that was mediocrity getting promoted too, uh, but because uh, I took a test, uh, I ended up being assigned to, uh, at one point in my career, to the detective um, bureau, and and the uh, uh, fraud unit was part of my command, and she was a fraud detective. And so of course I was kind of rolling my eyes. Here's some, this is going to be a problem employee. I'm going to have, you know, issues with performance and all this, these biases, these preconceptions that, that I had that many people did. And what I discovered very quickly was she was a phenomenal fraud detective, outstanding fraud detective, stellar. I'm talking stellar, like a plus fraud detective in terms of connecting with the people in the business community, in terms of investigating the crimes themselves, in terms of keeping up on the very quickly evolving tactics that the fraud uh, 
criminals were employing. Wow. And so I got an education from, from her and I had my, you know, some people take more of your time when you're a, a leader, a supervisor or, or a boss or whatever you want to call it. And some people are, you know, you know, type four, <laughs> you know, they, you just ask them, what do you need? And you let them go do it, you know, and she was one of those as a, as a fraud detective. And so that was clearly her strength and, and, you know, her weakness was other skill sets. And so I learned, it was a valuable lesson to me because, you know, my own bias was getting in my way initially when I, you know, got, got assigned there. And, and, and that, ha- that's happened with two or three other, two other police officers. We had a, a guy who was a goofball of a, of a patrol officer. I mean, my God, I could tell you stories. I mean, <laughs> pepper sprayed his own guys, me oh. included. Oh my uh, God. You know, he just, he was, he was arguably a goof, a goof as a, as a, patrol officer, not a very good patrol officer. And, but he was really smart. He was too smart. Some people said, you know, and he got promoted to Sergeant because, you know, took the test well and, 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 you know, got promoted and people were like, Oh God, same thing as with the fraud detective situation. And one of my buddies uh, was uh, on his patrol team. And he, I was like, why did you bid that team? You've got enough, you know, juice to bid wherever you want. He's like, the hours, man, I needed the hours. I needed it to be this shift because my kids, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, how is it working for so-and-so, you know, goofball guy that's now a sergeant? And he's like, you know, actually, he's a really good sergeant. And it turned out he was. Like, his skill set transferred really well to sergeant. He knew his stuff. He was he was a nice guy. He wasn't a jerk. He was just a goof, right? And so he was very attentive to his people. He was always going there and making sure they had what they needed. And if they needed something, he knew how to get it or he had the answer to their question. Uh, he cared about their welfare, uh, and, 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 but held them accountable, you know? And so, you know, here's this guy that's been on 10, 12, 15 years of, you know, that guy's telling me this goof, goofy, cop is a great sergeant and and then i saw it for myself he, he actually was so we pigeonhole people sometimes early in their career as this that or the other thing either a positive or a negative attribution and and then they ride they sometimes that jacket sticks either positively or negatively throughout their career and as a leader sometimes you have to be willing to reassess that frequently and be more, you know, objective. And I guess this just devolved into a leadership lesson. I apologize. <laughs> no, no worries. Actually, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that's another skill that I guess does transfer into into the writing world because if you're writing police books, you you know, the leaders are often very, you know, it's the guy that yells at you in his office, and that's pretty much all they do. And and I, I like to try to explore that concept a little bit more with a little bit more nuance and a little more reality. Yeah. So, cause that actually what you've been hitting on leads me to another question about characters. Um, and I have still like another three major questions I wanted to ask you, but do you have like an additional 15 minutes or so? Sure. Okay. Absolutely. Cool. Great. Cause I know we're about nearing the time, but I was like, I, I, these, you know, the questions that start popping up as a very interesting <laughs> conversation. Sure. So you mentioned that you wanted to make sure that your characters are not flat and you have multiple characters that you're balancing. How do you go about making sure that every character is unique? I think it goes back to what I said before about getting into their shoes and asking yourself, who is this person? What do they want? What, what's, what's made them who they are? What, what, uh, uh, what are their strengths and weaknesses, you know, and and what have their experiences been and, and how would that shape who they are? And it really helps if you're just a little bit crazy and you think about them as real people, because then you're invested a little bit more. Um, you know, my wife teases me that like that. If if I ever leave her, it'll be for Katie McLeod, you know, <laughs> which is not true. She's not my type, but, uh, but it is, it does, it does kind of show how much, like, I do love Katie McLeod. Like I do admire her for a variety of reasons. And I do think of her as almost like a real separate entity. Like it's not just some character I created. She, she has her own 
existence, as do many of the characters. Most of them, uh, the minor ones are a little harder sometimes. They're, you know, and so you have to work a little more to go through that exercise to really try to figure out who they are and make them come alive. But, you know, when you've been writing particular characters and they've evolved over, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, the first draft of my first River City book was 1995. So we're talking, 28 years of living with these characters, um, you know, they, they start to become very real uh, to you as the writer. And so um, it's, you, you ask more like what, what's going to happen next, not what do I want to write about next almost, you know, and what's going to happen in these characters' lives and what do they want as opposed to, oh, it'd be really cool to suddenly make her become an impressionist painter. Well, no, that's not who she is, right? And she's actually going this direction. And that's pretty obvious from from her behaviors. So but I, I think it's about knowing them and caring about them, even the bad ones, uh, in a way that uh, allows you to then show other people who they are. Mm-hmm. And that, that brings me to the next question of how do you start writing your books? I mean, it sounds like maybe you start with characters or do you just start with the draft? What's the beginning of the process look like for you? That's a great question. It's, you know, it's different depending on the book and sometimes the series. I think with the River City series in particular, um, I've kind of mapped out um, at least a couple of books ahead what the major events are going to be. And so I know kind of plot uh, in a very general sense. And then I move to, okay, what's that going to do? How's that going to affect the characters? What will their involvement be? What other things might happen? Are there things from previous books that are either threads I left that need to be resolved or could be resolved or should be resolved or maybe just left alone um, and so forth? And so usually starts with what's this going to be about? Okay, this one's going to be about uh like the, the the one I'll start in the spring is called North Shadowed Heart, and it'll be about a uh, radio uh, talk show host uh, who is being stalked. That's the crime. That's the big crime that's going on that, that we'll be seeing through the eyes of multiple people, how, how that plays out. Once that's resolved, I was like, okay, well, is everybody going to be involved in that? Well, Katie and her crew will be. And, and you know, so how's that going to affect? And But that's not going to affect these people. Are they going to be doing anything or are they just not going to be in this book? Because as, as the books go on, you know, somebody's role in it kind of rises and falls depending on the nature of the story. I mean, it, when the... I've had, uh, say, one book with a serial killer in it. Um, you know, the detectives are going to be pretty involved in that one, right? Uh, but other other books that might focus more on the patrol division, and and so once I know what that is, then it, it event is going to be what that driving uh, situation is going to be. I'll move to how it affects the characters. Um, other other books and other series sometimes. Um, can be different. It might, it might be just an idea that I wonder what would happen if, you know, and then you, and then you explore that and try to figure out if it would fit in this series or that series. Um, so I don't know if that's a very good answer, but that's, that's how it works. <laughs> yeah. I can see how the seed of it starts to grow. So then what's your revision and editing process like? That's an interesting question, too, because it's changed over the years, Um, uh, mostly because when I started, when I came out of that period of time where I wasn't really writing fiction because of the school and and work stuff, um, when I started writing short stories and they were crime short stories, uh, at that same time, I became friends with a, a guy named Colin Conway who is an excellent writer uh, on his uh, own behalf. And we started, you know, he was, he was, he was a police officer at the time too. Um, he, he actually left the job after about five years and went back into uh, the business world. But um, while we were both on the job there, we became friends and, and we were, you know, encourage each other, read each other's stuff, get each other pumped up, you know, the kind of thing that you get from another creative that, that I think is pretty crucial if you want to avoid the downtimes that inevitably happen. Uh, we actually wrote a book together uh, in my River City series. So I guess I have two with serial killers because there's one in that one too. So two out of 14, that's that's not a proliferation, I hope. 
Um, and as, as time went by, years later, we we started writing together more frequently. I, we actually write a series together called the Charlie 316 series. That uh, The sixth book in that series is in revision right now. And so the process of working with someone and how, how you make that work actually affected how I do my own revisions now. Um, and, and so what we would do is is – like a few and I were, were doing it, I would write whatever chapter one or however many chapters I'm, I'm responsible for that we worked out in advance when we put together the outline and I'll send it to you. Say just chapter one, you would read chapter one, do a light like revision on it with track changes. And then you'd write chapter two and then you send it back to me. I go in, I look at what you did in, in chapter one, accept or reject or comment or fix or whatever I need to do. I move on to chapter two and I do that same light revision with comments or whatever I need to do. And then I write chapter three mm-hmm. and this continues all the way through the book. And so by the time you're done, you're, you're looking at, you know, draft 1.5, you know, or, or maybe even 2.0, depending on how, uh, harsh you are in your revisions as you go, and we're pretty harsh about it. Um, and then, then it sits for a little while, and then we pick it up, and one person does a walkthrough with track changes, and we start bouncing it back and forth until we have a clean copy. And, and I, I mean, that's a real simplified version of what we do. That wasn't how I did my own work for a long time. I would write it, let it sit, go in, do another draft, send it off to somebody or whatever. Um, now I actually go in and I, I use track changes on my own work when I go in and then do a draft. I go in and I fix it with track changes. So if I have draft 1.0, I'll go in and do a complete read through and any changes I make are tracked. I may make a comment if I need to, but I don't usually use comments much when it's just me. And then when I get to the end of it, then I save it as draft 1.1 and then mm-hmm. I save it again as draft 1.2 and go in and accept the changes and, and, and look at them again, because sometimes I may not accept them if I didn't like how it turned out or whatever and proceed that way. So I've actually started doing, doing that with my drafts. And then once I have a draft that I feel like I can show to someone, um, uh, both Colin and I are edit for each other as well. So I'll send it to him and he'll do a hard pass on it and get it back to me. And, and usually at the same time, my wife is reading it for more 30,000 foot level feedback. And then it gives me a chance to do another draft. And then maybe another, if I feel like I need to, depends on you know where it's at. And then I have a beta squad that I send it out to. And, and they all have, they're all readers who have joined up, who have very different skill sets. Like some people are really good at line edits and, you know, copy editing. Some people are really good at continuity. Some people are really good at character or story, um, you know, and things like this. And so I'll send it out to half a dozen or eight, maybe depending. And then when I get the feedback from them, I'll do another draft. And that is usually pretty close to, if not the final, the final draft. So it goes through a lot of iterations, I would say. That's you've said something that I've never encountered before. But before I ask that, how many iterations would you say that is? Like maybe just a guesstimate. Um. Well, let's see. Uh, so first draft one point oh. Then I'm probably going to do another one. So two point oh goes over to Colin. So that comes back as, and, and the edits that I make from that would be three point oh goes out to to beta comes back. That's going to be 4.0. So I, I would say at least four as many, as many as seven, depending on if, if I, if I set it aside at some point and say, okay, marinade, I'll be back with fresh eyes in three weeks. Mm-hmm. And then I pull it out and do another pass. I might do more than one pass on any of those, you know, one, one, two, three, or four. So you might get a, you know, 2.0, 2.5 before we get to three, you know, sort of thing. So, uh, but I would say at least four is, is probably the minimum. That's awesome. And so, so just to make sure I understand one part of your editing process, when you leave track changes for your own work, kind of what you're doing is you're writing the draft as the writer, and then you switch mindsets, and then you're the editor. You're not editing anything. You're just saying, here's my comments, comments, comments. And then once you're done, you flip back to the writer and see if you even want to accept that. Is that correct? That's close. Um, I don't usually, like, like when Cole and I are editing for each other, we use comments a lot um, 
uh, although we've developed a short, a sort of shorthand, so the comments can be very brief. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, you, you need more explanation sometimes when you're with somebody else. You want to make sure you, that, okay, here's why I changed this because, you know, I, I, I feel like it, it, you know, we, we lost the tension here, something like that, whatever. Um, I don't need to put that note to myself if I'm doing it. I just make the change. Mm-hmm. And so I'd say the majority of the changes that I make in track changes are in the document, you know, deletions, ch- uh, changes, insertions, whatever. And I usually know why. If I ever think I won't know why, then that's when I would leave a comment, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, you, I would say you flip from you're the writer and then you, you go through and you're, you're the editor, but you're not 100% the editor because you're also still doing creative stuff. I mean, occasionally I think I put placeholders in like, I'm sure you do too, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, if I need to research something and come back to it or, or, you know, describe her hat here, you know, cause I'm on a roll and I don't want to stop and think about how that hat needs to look. You know, it's just, I'll get to it later. I want to keep going with this conversation because this is just flowing really well. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'll have to go in on that second draft and go, Oh yeah, that hat that she was supposed to be wearing was supposed to be green with a, you know, so you're still being creative to a degree, but I think you've got the gist of it. Yeah. You're, 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 it's funny that I said hats because you are, you're changing hats, writer hat, editor hat, and then back to the writer hat as I look to see what editor me did and, and take it from more of the creative standpoint. Was that a good edit? Um, which is what you're doing when you're working with somebody else, right? You're deciding whether to accept their suggestion or not, the change that they've made or the, the comment that they've made. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're smart, you consider it quite a bit, you know, but ultimately it's your work. And uh, if it's not a collaborative piece, then it, it's completely up to you whether you accept it or not. And that's part of the challenge, right? What, mm-hmm. what do you, you know, not letting yourself accept something that maybe you shouldn't. You know, but being humble enough, I guess, to accept the majority of of suggestions that make sense, which usually they they do. Yeah. And the other thing you said was that that your beta readers, some are very good at continuity. Some are very good at line editing. And that's something I've actually never considered before for a beta read. I'm like, here's a manuscript. Point out everything that might be going wrong. Um, But I love what you're doing. You're really honing in on specific um, strong points that they might have. I think that's brilliant. That's very cool. You know, I've never thought about it's, dividing it's not me. It's not me that came up with it though. It's them. I mean, it's <laughs> like they, they're just playing to their strengths. Nice. I think the only brilliant thing I did, and it's not really brilliant, but the only smart thing I did was recognize, okay, you know, Jim is really good at this and Sally's really good at that. So when, you know, when, when something comes back in, that's kind of what I focus on, even if they made other changes and and you know when you're when you get feedback if, if if you send a book out and you get feedback from eight people and five of them stumble on something that's a, there's a problem there right i mean that's yeah. that, that's a problem you need to look at it you need to figure out why and fix it if one person did you can be a little bit more okay let me look at this does this need to change or was this just the reader because you're never going to write perfect for every reader okay. so it's kind of the same with what you know is that is that her strength and she's mm-hmm. stumbling on it. You know what? I don't care if the other seven people didn't, that's what she's good at. And she caught on that. I need to look at it versus, you know, I have, I have one guy who is so good at catching typos, mm-hmm. but on text stuff, he, he, he gets wrong all the time. Like he'll correct me on stuff that, that contextually I'm like, no, that's not right. And I just yeah. ignore those fixes. I don't, I don't utilize them unless other people, you know, snag on it as well. And so the the smart thing is to recognize what those po- folks uh, have in terms of strengths and then really paying extra attention to that uh, sort of correction that they make. Um, because, like I said, if, they're, if it's what they're good at, you probably ought to listen. And that goes back to what you're talking about with leadership and mm-hmm. and um, characters is recognizing mm-hmm. where your strengths are, where your weaknesses are. Okay. Absolutely. I have one more question and then we can okay. run out. <laughs> Sorry right. about that. So Not at all. you teach writing and I would love to know what is the biggest writing stumble that your students hit? Well, I, you know, I, and teach writing, I, you know, I've done, a, you know, a dozen or so different writing seminars, you know, and, and they tend to be like uh, a six week 
one night a week for two and a half hours seminar on, you know, write your novel, revise your novel, you know, publish your novel, this kind of thing. I've done about a dozen of them over the years. And, and so what do people snag on the most? Is that what they struggle with the most? Um, you know, it's all over the board, but I think maybe the biggest error that you see is people rush. People, people, uh, not everybody does this, but you know in your head the scene and the character and the tone and everything. It's like a movie scene in your head, right? You see it. And then you put it down on paper and read it, but you're reading it with the benefit of, it's like reading a script while you've had the benefit of watching the television episode or something, right? Mm-hmm. You, you, you know there's a laugh track there when Rachel says this to Ross or whatever, right? I mean, you know because, because you've seen the video. But if it's not on the page, somebody who, who hasn't seen that video, who isn't inside your head to see this scene, it's not going to necessarily be conveyed to them, at least not anywhere close to what, you know, what you envisioned. And so people will rush through their description um, and, and, may, uh, and and it could be, you know, narrative, it could be dialogue, it, you know, it doesn't matter. They rush through the scene, I guess, and, and expect that the reader's getting the same thing out of it that they're getting, and they think it's just fine because they're seeing it through that lens of knowing the scene. And and when you give them that feedback, some people are very resistive to that because they're like, they see it in their head and they see something on the page that connects to what's in their head. So they think it's fine. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I've often had to encourage folks to, okay, you know, slow down. That doesn't mean be boring. It doesn't mean drag. It doesn't mean don't be compelling, but it does mean let your reader in by giving them everything they need to see the scene that's in your head. And, and that's, you know, because that's kind of magic, isn't it? You know, you see something in your head and you write it down and I see the same thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that is, that's a form of magic almost. And so, um, the thing that goes along with that, that I guess would probably be the second on that list is how to accept feedback. Um, I mean, how to give feedback. That's, that's another talent too. But, you know, you, people, people, whenever somebody, identifies themselves in a certain way and then that with which they identify themselves with is criticized. It feels like a criticism of you as an individual, you know, um, and, and that's just human nature. And also, you know, people, as you know, I mean, the, the stuff we create is very dear to us. I mean, that's why they say editing sometimes is about killing your darlings, right? Um, you, you, you love what you've written. How can you possibly cut it? You know, well, because it needs to go. Um, and, and, and so people get very guarded about criticism of what they've written. And so if you, you put those two things together, and sometimes it can be tough. You know, you've written this scene that doesn't qu- quite cut it but you think it does. And now somebody's telling you it doesn't quite cut it. And then you're not necessarily willing to hear that criticism in a way that will help you get to the point where that scene does paint the same picture in someone else's head as what's in your head. And it's tough. It's tough because, you know, not every criticism is accurate. How do you decide what to listen to? And I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a process. And, and if, if people want to get good at it, I think you just, you know, there's a lot of trial and error that goes on a lot, you know, a lot of reading and a lot of writing and a lot of listening and, and, and so forth. And so uh, those are, that's what I encountered. I think maybe more often than anything else though, is that struggle that with early writers. Thank you. Thank you. So Frank, where can people find you and find your books? Um, my website's the best place, really. I mean, it's a good central central hub of everything there, and that's just franksafiro.com. Uh, there's links there to my direct store. There's links there to uh, uh, social media and, and, and so forth. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm pretty responsive if people get in touch with me. I'm certainly nowhere near the profile that I don't answer every fan message Personally, uh, I actually enjoy that. Um, I, a quick story: I, when I was about 13, I was a big uh, science fiction and fantasy reader growing up. And one of my favorite uh, writers at the time uh, was a guy named Piers Anthony, uh, 
and uh, who you want to talk about somebody who writes across the the genre of science fiction and fantasy. I mean, every type of sci-fi or fantasy story and, and novel he's he's had one in that subgenre. Uh, but I, I wrote him a letter when I was like, I think about thirteen, and I, I'd written letters to other authors and you get the form letter back that was probably typed out by the secretary and maybe signed by the author and that was cool and everything but from Piers Anthony I got back just a three by five card that was kind of utilized as a postcard had my address and stuff on one side and on the back side of the three by five card was a typewritten message that filled the whole three by five card there were strikeouts and and you know, typos and everything but it was very personalized like what I asked about in my letter was answered and then he say something about you might like this book that's coming out next you know November or whatever and that just made such a huge impact on me as a young reader that that connection I mean it, it may seem weird to people listening now because they're like yeah you can just add somebody on Twitter and they'll answer you or whatever okay but how often is that the person and how often it is that the secretary writing the form letter same kind of thing yeah, right? people same. people have people who manage their their social media platforms, uh, yeah. some of them anyway. This was obviously not the case. This was obviously a very a personal reply. It just made a big impact on me that that you know because he's huge. He was huge in the eighties, and and that he took the time to do that made a very big impression on me. So, you know, unless something slips into spam and I don't notice it, uh, and I check spam regularly just because of that, uh, I always take the time to answer writers or readers that that reach out, and I because it's certainly. You know, I can't do that for Piers Anthony. He doesn't need me to do that. <laughs> he's he's doing fine. But uh, uh, if if I could even be a tenth of that to somebody else, then then that's uh, that's time well spent. Wow, and that's amazing! Like with the crossouts and everything, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I saved them for a long time. I lost them at some at some move. We were talking about moving oh. before we went on the on on Nike, and uh, I lost them at some point. And uh, I wish I had hung on to them. That would be worth framing them, actually, just as a reminder. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, but thank you for for sharing that because you know that means everyone here can reach you, and you'll they'll get that personalized you know email or message. From Absolutely. You well, thank you so much, Frank. Um, this has been lovely. Such a great pleasure to have you. And whenever you publish the next book, I mean, we'll probably be around the corner because you're so prolific. <laughs> just let us know. We'd love to have you back on. Oh, that'd be wonderful. Thanks. You asked some really good questions, and I, I've been on a number of podcasts, and so sometimes you get the same questions uh, on each one, but uh, you, you asked some very unique ones. So excellent job. Thank you. Thank you. It's all about you having fun because then we'll have fun as well. <laughs> yeah, that's very, very true. <laughs> well, from the How to Write a Book podcast, thank you so much, Frank. We appreciate you and your time here. And everyone, check out com to get his gritty crime fiction. And we're looking forward to seeing what's next. And that's a wrap for today's episode of the How to Write a Book podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you want to keep up with me and my work, check out the website, blackheartedstudios.com. That's www.blackheartedstudios.com. And follow me on Instagram, at Maciel Writes. That's at M-A-S-S-I-E-L Writes. As a book coach and publisher, I'm passionate about helping aspiring authors bring their stories to life. So if you've been dreaming of writing a book and don't know where to start, head to my website and let's chat. You get a free 30 minutes on me. Thanks again for listening and don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks.